0: Hello and welcome to Dystopian Deep Dives with your host, Natalie Donna. What follows is a conversation with the good folks over at the Melt Podcast. You can check them out. Um, It's a conversation about their time in the Temple of the Psychic Youth by Genesis P. O'Ridge and the Carlos Castaneda group. So please enjoy. I hope there's some interesting revelations about cults and their lore. Without further ado, here's the episode. Uh, I, I think it was a couple of years ago that we last spoke, maybe. Has it been that long um, ago? Yeah, because um, it was 2020, so...
1: Insane. I don't know oh.
0: what what month it was, but...
1: Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't look at the uh, episode number, but yeah, I guess you're right. I guess it has been a while. It was right yeah. after we both did David Seaman.
0: Mm-hmm. David Siemens the reason for this.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Inadvertently.
0: That's so funny. It um, is.
1: I was just going to say in your, in your thing, got your video, your episode of him got pulled off too, right?
0: Yes. I do have a few questions, I guess, because um, I think about cults and groupthink and that kind of stuff all the time. And I find that a lot of cults center around sort of a fantastic narrative which uh, I think was probably the case for the groups that both of you were a part of at one time. Um, was that part of the draw for you?
2: Well, in, in my situation, I came a little bit late to the party. Uh, the, the Carlos Castaneda world had been kind of in its apex and in its heyday in the 60s, in the late 60s. And early 70s and I arrived into their ecosystem in I first read the books in the 80s in like 84 was kind of my introduction into that world and then subsequently met Castaneda and his group um, in the 90s, in the early 90s, so in, in my s- specific circumstance, I think that there was a, a lot of mythos surrounding Ca- Castaneda and, you know, many people set out, and uh, this is kind of a common thread that I've heard from a lot of people who did end up kind of being in his um, stratosphere, was that they decided to find him many years before they'd ever actually had any, any interaction with him. So it wasn't like there was a, a um, epicenter that you could go to. It, it's not like uh, becoming a Mormon where you can go to a church and this is the place where you're going to find the gospel. Um, this was way more um, fantastical in some senses because it required a lot of uh, your own investigation and your own um, intent and your own ability. So for the millions of people who had read these books, there was a very small segment of people who actually set out to find him and, and say, this is someone that I want to have some kind of a interaction with. So I think while I agree with you, there, is some, there are some fantastical um, circumstances surrounding cults. There's very few cults that were like the Castaneda group in that there wasn't one place you could go where you knew you were going to find Castaneda right. or anyone in his group.
1: And they probably weren't. Necessarily referring to themselves as a cult, right?
2: Right. No, that was the that was the hilarious part of of the the whole circumstances. These these people are saying we're not a group. We're not a group. We just all dress exactly alike, and we all have the exact <laughs> same haircut. But we're not in a group, and we all have the exact same diet, and the and all the and have very similar habits. But we're not in a group,
1: <laughs> which is. Kind of the, the same thing with Topi, I guess. Topi always sort of advertised itself as the anti-cult, uh, whilst taking on cult-like trappings, which I I found was oddly appealing. Uh, and I fell into that, too. I wore the uniform uh, to a certain extent, had the haircut, still have a psychic cross tattoo. Um so I thought it was just, I mean, it was presented as something, it was like playing around with the trappings of a cult, uh, but not, obviously, we're all too intellectually sophisticated to ever get involved in a cult or think that we were in a cult. Um, so, yeah, it was a, it was a strange uh, sort of juxtaposition between, you know, uh, it playing around with, uh, flirting with the idea of being a cult and simultaneously, not considering itself a cult at least maybe the from the top down they were but from where i was at that's the way that i saw it
2: well I, one of one of the primary um, things that you can look for when you're trying to find figure out if you're in a cult is a sense of segregation from society and a sense of um the 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 mythos that you are better than other people, for being involved in this group. That sort of
0: in-group out-group situation, yeah. Absolutely, this idea
2: that if you've taken on this path of knowledge, and you've really um, adopted this as as a lifestyle, that you are better than other people in some senses, because of the level of uh, piousness and devotion that you have to your desire for freedom will separate you from your family. That's another criteria for a cult, is um, losing your identity, your individual identity, and then becoming part of this group um, ideology or this this group um, mindset, and. Again, it's because, you know, oh, those people are sheep and those people are asleep and they don't know what the fuck Mm. is going on. And if you know what's going on, then you're going to adopt these specific behaviors and you are going to um, separate yourself from the old you, which was flawed. Um, But the way that you get there is by doing these very specific things. Like that's the thing that's that's the rub is that you are not whole on your own. You need the group, you need the instruction, you need the leadership in order to be on the path.
0: Yeah, I read that the, uh, the Castaneda group required members to cut themselves off from the past and their families. So would you describe your experience like that?
2: oh absolutely absolutely because the the rebirthing process is you're given a new name um you're the idea is that you're redreaming yourself so anyone yes, who sort of
0: fantastical reality that's painted right. on top of the one and
2: and a break right.
0: from it right
2: right yeah so it's and, and that's that's what makes it different from the matrix in that What they are saying, what the Castaneda group was saying is the matrix that everyone is living in, that's the hell realm. Mm -hmm. The the groundhog day existence that everyone finds themselves in, that's the hell realm. The real dream is um, a dream of awareness and sentience in this other reality and the only way to get into that reality is through Kastaneda's energy um, because he is the Nawal so he is the one who basically holds the key to this sacred knowledge that's thousands of years old oh but wait there's no group to join so you can't really be a part of it even though these people have devoted their lives to this ideology and this mythos, um, but they're not a part of it either. But So you can't be a part of it, but we're all joining, we're all making this leap into this higher level of consciousness, but you can't, there's no way you're ever going to make it. So basically that's another aspect of the cult is it's untenable. So okay. no matter what you do, you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to, You could never eat sugar again, be on the perfect diet, recapitulate your life, uh, you know, do all the movements, learn all the movements that have ever been taught, um, focus on inner silence, dreaming, do all of these things uh, monastically, and it's still never going to be enough because your leader has already gone, he's already left the building. And this is when he was still alive.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he was alive and into the 90s.
2: Uh, when... The late 90s, yes.
0: Yeah. Um, I think both groups had the allure of a leader that was very intelligent, charismatic, and artistic. And I think that's kind of what brings them together is the art. Um, you have a musician um, in Genesis P. Ridge. And you have a writer in Carlos Castaneda whose books were, you know, made him uh, very wealthy. And uh, I guess at first uh, they were, he was saying that they were nonfiction, but it, you know, sort of surfaced that they were fictional. Um, But I think the art, I think the connection between art and, and people who are seeking, right? And they're intelligent Um, I think that's part of the draw. Do you think that's way, why, excuse me, the narrative may have been kind of so convincing because these people were so dedicated to their art and their project and they seemed to kind of have it together in a way. Does this make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the case with Topi is I desired at that point in my life community, like artistic community magical community. I was just starting to get into, well, I shouldn't say I was just starting to get into the occult. I started doing that when I was in junior high. But uh, I liked what Genesis was saying about a culture. So he was taking all these hidden practices and things that were usually relegated to secret societies and kind of just making them public, sort of like street magic. So it was very appealing because it was non-pretentious and something very practical and you could use anything a a walkman or any sort of uh, gadget as a talisman or some kind of a magical item to do whatever it is that you wanted to do and then he was really obviously into um, sigil magic which is the main practice of topi Uh, so yeah it was very appealing in that sense too and i thought that he did have his shit together uh, because on the outside you know we well, had this organization of people and they all seemed very creative and uh prolific a psychic tv was putting out an album a live album every month for like 23 months in a row so it was like i want to be around this community or i want to be a part even if it's across the sea um a part of this group of people who actually are doing something to to better themselves or to try and improve themselves or improve their circumstances but it wasn't until, geez, within the last six years that I found out that Genesis, through his ex-wife, was a fucking megal- megalomaniac. I mean, he was a, an abusive person. And, and it kind of made a lot of things that I kind of just tilted my head about back then, it kind of made it all make sense. Because there always seemed to be some very intensely sort of dark uh, aspect of of Genesis and of Topi, for that matter, but I was kind of drawn to that at that age because it was rebellious. It was edgy, right. of yeah. course. Yeah. So was it's so funny
2: because I have such a the antithetical experience, Natalie, in my world. Um, I didn't want to be a part of anything. I I approached this uh, this system of belief because I didn't want to be a part. I saw through the veneer of groups and groupthink and group mind, and I saw it all as a costume. So I saw the punk rock movement as a costume. I saw the goth movement as a costume. Uh, and for me, all of that, one, yeah. <laughs> it certainly was fun, but it was, it was really about wallowing in self-indulgence and, um, a sense of nihilism oh, and, yeah. ap- and a lack of wonder of the world and, and the sense of kind of like, um... Being, you know, too cool for school. Like premature cynicism. And yeah, and I saw through all of that. And at a very, I, I think the reason I was so primed and so perfect for a cult was because I had grown up in this very transient childhood. So I was always the new kid. I was always the kid who was joining or going into social dynamics that had already been established. So I kind of knew the pecking order when I would go into a school. I could kind of tell who was cool, who's not cool, who's the in, who's the out. And um, so I think that that kind of sophistication from childhood made going into a cult very appealing to me because it was about um, isolating myself and I was already someone very isolated. So anything that was a system that was the onus was completely on me and not on a group was what I wanted to be a part of because I was a very physically active person and I wanted, I didn't want the intellectual let's all get high and talk about the universe bullshit. I saw through that. What I wanted was action. I wanted to go into the desert and have mystical experiences. And I wanted to push my body to its physical limits um, through fasting and um, diet and um, doing movements and taking hallucinogenics and doing these things that were all very kind of self focused so when the system uh, uh, appeared to me it was like oh okay so this is what I have to do is write my dreams down this is something I already do and try to gain awareness in my sleep this is something that I already do I was very drawn to that because I wasn't interested in other people's mystical experiences I wanted to have my own and I, I had more of an interest in pushing my physical body and my energy to its um, absolute maximum limit that I could. So I think that's something that uh, the Castaneda world really opened up was the dreaming world. And it was about having those dreaming experiences and then being able to um, verify the experiences that I'd had in my waking life, that's what really fascinated me. And so I took on my, that experience as though I was walking in, like I was a walking science project and I just was using my body as the vessel. Um, so that's what appealed to me, was when I would go into these seminars and there's 400 people doing movements and listening to these lectures I was like oh they're hypnotizing people (laughs) I I see what's happening here there's there's forms of deprivation that are happening here that are giving people these experiences that they're calling magical experiences Mm -hmm. but it's just it's it's physiological what's going on more than it is from like a psychic realm. So I think that's the thing that I, I walked in skeptical. And when I saw these kind of moony eyed people, I was like, what the fuck is, <laughs> like, what is this? Like, why are all these people cutting their hair all of a sudden and wearing these very kind of uniform clothes? Uh, so it was easy for me to kind of, I think, to see through what felt culty and separate that from what my actual, um, my own magical experiences that I was having were.
1: I think that the difference between your situation and my situation is that I never had a huge group of people and seminars and shit like Mm -hmm. that to go to. this was like a cult. If I, I still don't know if I... I mean, I guess it was yeah, a cult. Yeah, I never know which
0: word to use. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: But I mean, that's the closest approximation. We, we, can, we can go with that for now. Um, of single people. You know, I didn't have anybody anywhere remotely near me who... Well, maybe Brett, but... Uh, who was onto this stuff, you know? Yeah. So it was like mail order, a mail order magical group slash cult. Uh so I never felt those same kinds of things. It was sorta cool to uh, you know, wear this uniform and to wear shirts with psychic crosses on them and have my head shaved except a long piece in the back, braided into twenty three different braids. Um, because I was the only person doing it in my town, you know, like if there was (laughs) thirty five of us then it might have been different and it might have felt more culty, but it just felt like I was connecting with people around the world uh in a way that was sort of removed and safe i guess in a way so i never felt like you know it was just different just a different uh context than than what you had to go through hunter
0: yeah um yeah so you guys both talk about sort of the magical experience of i think another parallel between them is the the magic aspect um and that it's interesting that both groups were seeking enlightenment through different forms of magic. Um, I guess we already really covered that that was sort of part of the draw for Hunter and yourself. Um, were there some form of, of ritual uh, that you guys would perform to become? Probably not with Topi, just sort of...
1: Are you kidding me? Enjoy. Of course. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, twenty third hour of the twenty third of every month is when you would everybody would do their sigil uh, uh, ritual and then send it into Topi uh, headquarters. Oh. Yeah, so you would have to you know get out your candles and your blade and your whatever else you your recording that you made uh, everything that you wanted to involve in your ritual and it was sort of like a group intent uh even though we were all mm-hmm. in different time zones obviously but uh you knew that other people in various parts of the world uh were doing that same thing relatively sooner or later than than you were so yeah it was very ritualistic in a sense and very but that was really the only group sort of hoop that people had to jump through uh i never went to any of the camp outs or anything like that but that's when the initiations happened that Uh, I never had a part of and I'm very glad that I didn't because they sounded very intense and a a few of them went south uh, To my knowledge
2: um, I I think that you know, what makes humans so interesting is how Easily we will seek that that stuff out and adopt things um, and kind of fill in our own blanks Mm -hmm. so Uh, you know, there were people who truly treated Castaneda's books as though they were a religion and, you know, they would go into these seminars because he, for many years, for decades, he was giving talks uh, at like the Phoenix bookstore in California and, you know, for completely for free. And, you know, they would, they would get a packed house But he wasn't really monetizing his magic at that point other than uh, writing these novels and and then uh, putting them out for the public. So, you know, the primer, any primer people had, uh, any magic primer was something that they basically got from the book uh, or a book, and then they would just try to reproduce or recreate What had happened in the book. Um, And I always found that very interesting because I think what drew me to the Castaneda world, as I said initially, was my desire for freedom. Um, And so I wasn't really looking for um, dogma or indoctrination i wasn't trying to find someone to tell me that i was bad and that this is what i needed to do to be good and to be saved so what i did and and maybe this was my child's mind and and kind of my naivete going into this experience was i just did things on my own as experiments and then I just kind of mapped the the behavior or or what I would note. Um, so I did, you know, thirty days of fasting. I would do uh, sleep deprivation. I would do, you know, I would go on these insane psilocybin and MDMA trips, and none of this stuff was mandated. None of this was part of the curriculum um but these were things that i felt were specific to me and they were pushing my physical body to the, the degree that i i felt it necessary to push it and so you know i think that any any kind of ritual um behavior were things that people were bringing to the table they certainly weren't things that were were, uh, scripted. And I think that's a really important thing to understand is that, you know, who was the leader, you know, who was really leading any of these groups? Were was there someone that, that you kind of felt was your North Star or, were you just kind of going along with what was the program was and and just assuming that the person you saw on the stage was the person leading, the the group as it were, um, so it, for me I think, I I kind, I was very skeptical of any kind of ritual behavior that I felt like other people were, were bringing to the table. I felt like what my journey was was very specific to me and so I I think that's where I am a chronically defiant person is that I don't find I don't find it easy to follow the rules (laughs) or instructions (laughs) you know I I'm I'm too defiant I want to know why well why am I supposed to do this (laughs) not not just do this and then tell me what happens so um yeah i I think that's one of the the things that I they found appealing about me was that i I was kind of on my own and I was kind of doing my own thing. but I think that's also what makes someone like me dangerous is that I'm not someone that's easily controlled. And so um, I'm not someone who it's gonna be like if they would have come to me and said, You have to give us all of your jewelry' And sign over all of your wealth to us. I would have been like, "How is this helping my freedom? <laughs> like, how is this helping me?" Or uh, some people did it did, did that very willingly, and and gave away animals and gave away the, uh, you know things, uh, cut off relationships that were very important to them. Um, so that's my short, long answer. Yeah, I mean, I think. <laughs>
0: I think humans, uh, like you said, are drawn to ritual. Um, and I think we see this very clearly through what, you know, I guess is the cult of COVID, the never ending. Oh <laughs> I God. mean, I don't know. If, is it still going on where you guys live? or the, So here, let me just tell you, uh, we mm-hmm. had the shortest uh, restaurant sort of thing ever for like one month they were requiring people to show their papers and then they oh, wow. dropped it <laughs> for one month this year at the beginning of the year, I was, I was bummed out. And sometimes I think mm-hmm. they change the rules all the time to like emotionally mess with you. Yeah, um, Because the rules are always constantly changing with the cults mm-hmm. of COVID. And Absolutely. so the mandates are basically gone um, as far as restaurants and I think some public places. There was some really cool, there's a cool venue in Philly called The Fire uh, that, you know, just she's this cool older lady that did not care and, and kept it going mm-hmm. throughout the whole mm-hmm. thing. So there have been people that have resisted it. Um, so yeah, I wanted to catch up with like, are the, we don't have to wear masks here anymore, okay? Mm-hmm. But people are mm-hmm. still doing it. However, our public transit keeps changing the message. It's like, it's required one day, and then the next day it's not. But most people seem to have voted and aren't doing it. It's very strange. I went to a party (laughs) where only one person was doing it uh, at a barbecue outside. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, what's the the ritual is still there. This is what we do, I guess, now. So what, what? Is the cult of COVID still going strong out where you guys are?
1: Well, I mean, we're not totally intertwined in the social life of Lawrence, Kansas, but um, (laughs) I've heard tell that, well, first of all, there are still people that are wearing masks. Uh, Lawrence is a sort of woker than thou sort of place, loves to wear its virtual signaling on its sleeve. so there's that. Uh, and the, so there are places that are still, I think there's a few places down on Mass Street that are still requiring masks, right? Wonder yeah, Fair, probably. probably. Yeah, the really woke ones. Um, the same ones that had the Black Lives Matter and rainbow stuff all over the place. Uh, yeah, it's all the same but,
0: people. <laughs> it's yeah, all the same it is. people. Yeah, And it, former, it was former rebels. very frustrating, yeah.
1: It is. Uh, But I've heard of this, there's been a lot of couples that sort of was in my vague social group at one point that have parted ways because of the vaccine and they have kids. So uh, one side will be pro, one side will be not. Uh, And so I've heard that it's really divided a lot of folks up which I'm sure that's the case everywhere. But what, what is your take on the temperature here?
2: Well, I, I mean, I just think it's another, another form of control that people are really interested in adopting. I think what, I mean, the correlation you could create with this and a cult is that it's about, um how people perceive you Mm -hmm. more than it is the good that it's really doing so you know these guys or Mm -hmm. these women who were shaving their heads to to uh, support charles manson they were doing that not because hair somehow um held them back energetically, it was just to, to appear unified Solidarity. with someone. Yeah. And so, and it was to to divide themselves from the others mm-hmm. in yeah. the world. And I think the COVID thing is the exact same thing, is that someone who's still wearing a mask to, over two years into this is not wearing a mask because they're genuinely afraid of a germ they're wearing it because of a habituation of fitting into a group and what that group represents which is i care more about you than you care about me so it's this form of virtue signaling that i think is still going on and the cult mentality is zero critical thinking zero there's no 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 thought whatsoever uh, of science and of germs and how viruses are transmitted none of that matters what matters is what you appear uh the the message that you are are appearing to give the world and It's just, it's gone beyond the point of it actually even making sense anymore. And I don't think these people give a fuck. They don't, they're not trying to make sense. It's more, I'm holier than than thou. And this is the way, this is my martyred way of um, showing the world that.
1: Fundamentalist wokeism. It's the same dynamic when white liberals stand up for oppressed classes or peoples of any kind. Uh, A lot of those people don't want (laughs) Don't want anybody's help You know They don't want to be belittled Or classified into uh, Arbitrary groups of skin color Or sexual preference Or anything like that So it's so presumptive For those people to think That they're doing somebody a favor By, you know Putting a sign in the yard Or wearing a flag or whatever So I think it's just the same thing It's stating what side you're on As if there's fucking sides You know (laughs) Right?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I uh, in a I mean, sort of pro I don't even like the pro reality term, but yeah, just this sort of uh, I like to analyze the evidence, uh, look at everything that's in front of me mm-hmm. um, so I can see why maybe Castaneda would appeal to you, Hunter, if that was kind of the way that you approached it as sort of, you know, you're experimenting and you're taking in data and you're learning things from the data, um, but yeah, all of that sort of like uh, it does. You're right; it doesn't matter to these people. It's totally flown out the window. Uh, any kind of 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 critical thought about it, and yeah, it is. So here, the neighborhood that I and the people that I see doing it the most are uh, like in West Philly. In West Philly is like the sort of like hippie. Uh, now it's more. Yeah, but it's all those same kinds of people. Um, and we did, we did have big protests here. And I just thought it was so ironic because I was like, wow, so, the, but the policies that they're creating are actually taking away your rights and no one's in the street doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it You're was t- just a level of disappointment, I'm sorry. You're talking
1: about BLM protests? Or are you talking yeah. about, okay, mm-hmm. gotcha.
0: Yeah during uh, 2020 um, mm-hmm. I mean the city has basically cleaned up since it's almost like it never happened which is interesting but for a year and a half there it was uh, really spooky because no one came out and then mm-hmm. everyone was out in the street for those uh, protests um, which were all right they, nobody
1: nobody catches COVID when they're against racism
0: Right. And they were riding. I mean, I think it was really an excuse. You saw some of the recordings, you know, they were just partying. <laughs> I think yeah. People just wanted an excuse to go outside, Yeah. Um, even <laughs> though were. I never let it stop me. I, you know, I walked around 30th Street Station. It was empty. It was so spooky. Um, it was like a post-apocalyptic film for a couple of weeks, which I, I thought was wild. Um,
1: Just people standing around vaping, waiting for the next shipment of bricks to be sent in.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't go out for those. uh, But the National Guard was very close to where I live. Um, And that's the other thing, the sort of um, push and pull between like authority, but they're still being authoritative, right? With the like, where this thing and oh i I can't believe you better quarantine or like you know I still have to take a test at my place of work uh, oh. every week like, <laughs> the, like the for two years the, the nose, swab
1: up the nose
0: the nose guy yeah
1: jeez that's humiliating
0: it is and I, I got I was actually kind of grumpy yesterday when it happened but um it is what it is for now and We'll see, you know, what happens in the future with my personal life, but it is totally uh, humiliating, and it is a ritual. And so, actually, back to sort of the funding of all of this, um, it's crazy how much money this must cost the federal government that we're paying, because the group that comes in is subsidized by you know our tax dollars and they have all this pe- I'm like do you really need like all this stuff to swab my nose like I understand some gloves and like maybe a mask or something whatever but like they're wearing like full suits not like I don't like know what suits? they are but they're not ha- they're like scrubs sort of hazmat It's like light. a blue thing yeah it's hazmat like <laughs> like a hazmat bikini
2: <laughs> And I just it's so- think
0: of all the money going into it
1: Yeah, exactly. And these are PCR, right?
0: Yeah. So they're not even...
1: Exactly. They're bullshit. Total bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. That's the ridiculous part. I mean, it all starts with the test, which then supposedly inform the case numbers, which supposedly inform all the fear we're supposed to be experiencing. Like, the root of that, the PCR, is so faulty. So absolutely faulty. And it's been pointed out several times about people don't seem to make that connection that that's that test is not going to tell you anything worthwhile
0: again it's part of the ritual part of the belief Yeah. that, that this thing is doing something when really it's just uh, creating people you know being home for days that they might not need to be if they're not actually sick you know if there were no tests there would be no COVID <laughs> exactly like almost like virtually because yeah anyway so how it many is. how yeah, many amish
1: ahead. how many amish are dying yeah exactly
0: no and actually they they've they have some really nice events that like were happening and that was actually a refuge i'd go out to amish country during oh, cool. 2020 and they were like still operating their businesses you know mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're great. Um, they're, their kids sometimes don't wear shoes, but. <laughs>
1: That's what keeps their immune system so up and at them, you know.
0: They're all playing in the dirt, yeah.
1: Yeah, no sanitizer, like just dirt and God. That's all. That's all they need.
0: Livestock and cheese.
1: Yes. Manure in the air and, and good furniture. <laughs> quality furniture
0: (laughs) and quilts um yes actually cycling back really quickly to castaneda uh i found it interesting uh that it influenced people like george lucas and uh deepak chopra do either of you have an opinion on on those two sort of famous people
2: wait who was (laughs) the first one george lucas Uh, george Uh, lucas uh, yeah, yeah 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 Well, Lucas was very influenced by Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. and he he really I mean he even stayed at Skywalker Ranch at some point, kind of at the the end part of his life. Like he was very very connected with uh, Joseph Campbell. Uh, you know I think the thing with Costaneda is that the government. is is, has so many different tentacles and so many different parts of our, our, uh, world. And the academic world is probably the direct, most direct link, um, culturally, if you want to look at movements that happen, Uh, they usually happen through academia and because The government uses academia. I think a lot of these movements are really designed as experiments to see how people will will, um, adopt certain behaviors and if they will adopt certain behaviors. And so, you know, using Castaneda as an anthropologist and, you know, creating this mythos around him that he's found this wizened old um, Indian and of course the knowledge that a wizened old Indian is going to be uh, more important and it's going to carry more weight than if it was some you know nerdy menshy white dude in uh, a lab so I, I think that you can you can basically write any story you want and put it in the context of professor or put it put it in the context of a doctor in education and it's going to carry a lot more credence for people than if you just put it out in a film and so i think that that's where the government used castaneda and people like timothy leary and people like Terrence mckenna and people um like ken kesey is they basically took these men, these humans and said, okay, let's start a revolution in the academic world and then sit back and watch and see how that influences and affects the culture. And I think you can see uh, Costaneda's influence in films. You can Read it in literature. You can see it just in the overall zeitgeist and how we, we, the relationship we have with psychedelics. Um, I think a lot of those things are birthed from, um, Carlos Castaneda's, um, his handling of, of those subject matters. So it doesn't surprise me that someone like Deepak Chopra would be influenced or into Carlos Castaneda. I know that uh, James Redfield, the man who wrote The Celestine Prophecy, he cited Castaneda as a major influence and The Celestine Prophecy has been debunked um, as has um, A Course in Miracles. So again, there are these these waves of movements that have happened in our culture that you can dial back and you could say, oh, it was from this professor or from this doctor um, in the academic world. But the seed of that is some governmental agency that has influenced and infiltrated um, psychological departments in, in universities or sociological department or anthropology departments in universities. These, these systems have been infiltrated and the result is someone like a Deepak Chopra being considered an authority when the guy is basically a snake oil salesman. I mean, there I said it.
1: <laughs> oh my God. The witches are going to come after you. Um yeah, the question. Oh, I don't have anything to say about George Lucas and Deepak Chopra. I don't know anything about Deepak Chopra. I know the last time that we watched the Star Wars movies with the kids, I just realized that I'd never want to see them again in my life. So I've graduated Star Wars. But yes, I guess he was same. Uh yeah. He was associated with Joseph Camel, so and he did he was a Waldorf. He put his kids through Waldorf school, right? Yeah. And didn't, didn't let them yeah. near screens and devices and stuff like that. So there's some smarts there. Um, yeah. I think he just wanted to make commercials for toys for kids, really. So he made them two and a half hours long. Any old way. Uh, it would be interesting to see if there's some kind of... Like you were talking about with these cults and stuff like that, behind Topi. Because Topi would have been a perfect experiment in so many ways because of that. Because... They were flirting with cult-like notions. They, I mean, they would release... Uh, I mean, uh, Topi at one point released a picture disc numbered for the victims of the Jonestown Massacre. I don't remember how many that was, necessarily. 800
2: or 900?
1: Something like that. So f- they put out whatever, whatever the body count, and the, the disc was actually a recording of various Jim Jones speeches, and then I think some of it, the last part of it, was the drinking of the Kool-Aid. So, hey. At (laughs) gunpoint.
2: But you know my favorite fun fact about Jim Jones, total sidebar, Natalie, my favorite fun fact is that Mm -hmm. Jim Jones was a door-to-door monkey salesman in in Gary, Indiana. That was his very first job when he was 16. Door-to-door monkey sales.
0: My goodness. Fun fact.
2: How,
0: how does one even get into that?
2: In Gary, I Indiana. Mean... <laughs> <laughs> they need, they've got a monkey shortage
1: in Gary, Indiana. So that was a right market. My goodness. So also, uh... I was just going to say before the sidebar, um, is that they were also very fascinated by the Manson family. So. Yes. And serial murderers and stuff like that, which at that point in my life were things that I found fascinating, too. Not because I thought these Mm -hmm. people were cool or I wanted to emulate them or anything like that. But I was fascinated by the dark side of humanity, of the human mind, of human potential, because I didn't feel dark at all. So I was fascinated by why anybody would do stuff like that. Mm. Um, But I think a lot of people were fascinated by dark things because they were dark, because they, they, they related to that darkness. Uh, and I found a lot of that out as the years went on hearing about ex extopy people who OD'd, many of them OD'd on heroin. Uh, many of them, you know, were, went into deep depressions. Uh, and so I think, I mean, I I wouldn't say that Topi was about enlightenment. I think maybe it was about self-exploration, but that doesn't always end well. Um, Sometimes you look inside and you don't see pretty things. And if you don't know what to do about them, then you're just stuck with an open wound, not knowing what to do with it. Um, So I think there were probably a lot of casualties, metaphorically and literally, from this movement that I don't, I'm not sure whether any of that's ever been addressed. I don't know a lot of these people anymore. I thought about interviewing Tom Banger, who was the head of uh, the U.S. station of Topi, just to get his take on it. But he, until, his, the, until right up until Genesis died, seemed to be good buddies with him and thought he was a great guy and stuff like that. And I'm not convinced. So um, there's that. My two cents. I don't know if that even answered any question or whether there was a question. But
2: she was asking about George, George Lucas. Lucas and Deepak Chopra. <laughs> <totally laughs> it's yes. okay if you have no opinion on either of them. <laughs> Not really. I
1: don't
0: have much of one. I don't think I'd know who Deepak Chopra was um, if it weren't for Sam Harris, who I used to listen to to just yeah. fall asleep. Actually. Yeah. Um <laughs> i didn't really listen to sam (laughs) he just has that voice
1: yeah Um, very calming
0: but yeah i had never heard of him before then um but yeah he seems kind of silly at best uh to me
1: what what was i'm just curious what was sam saying about deepak showbrook
0: i think they're in a feud (laughs) sam's always in a
1: feud with somebody because
0: like uh, Deepak Chopra might believe in some kind of higher power and, and
1: oh my gosh
0: right Sam Harris is like some kind of staunch like atheist uh-huh. which is another sort of I think faith-based situation it <laughs> <is>. <laughs> uh, yeah especially on the internet um, I find these sort of internet groups to be very fascinating you know um, because it is very decentralized it's maybe like a uh, maybe Castaneda is sort of a proto of that, like a bit where, you know, you have all these groups of people who coalesce on the internet surrounding, like, let's say one topic or one idea. Um, I think it's a really interesting time to live in with all these people because also we have no idea what people are consuming in their private time. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So you're like just walking amongst these people that are, I think maybe floating in a lot of different realities. Oh yeah. Uh, Um, which is the case anyway, right? But still like the, anyway.
1: I think the COVID situation we were talking about earlier is a perfect example. I mean, an outstanding example of what worlds people live in because I think we found, I mean, I always knew that people, you know, work their 40 hour a week jobs and come home and channel surf until they fall asleep on the recliner and then they do it all the, you know, do the same thing the next day. So they kind of are already suckling the teat of mainstream media, but this really showed to what extent, because all this stuff, I mean, everything that you get through the tube is hearsay for the most part. You just either believe it or you don't believe it. And you got to see how many people not only believed it, but were willing to have that be their hill that they die on or shame people in public or mm-hmm. you know really ostracize members of their family because they didn't believe the same things that they heard through their fucking tv and didn't have any first-hand experience with so that was a perfect example of how media is so utterly pervasive and how porous of a container it is for any actual tangible reality and that People were so easily taken by that, you know, like that's, that's a narrative. That's a pretty strong narrative that I think I would want to start poking at and seeing where the holes are. But it seemed like nobody thought of that. Like they're just going to, oh,
2: really? Oh my
1: God. And then that's, they just, will just goose step off the cliff. And if that's what they're told to do, it's just very odd, very strange.
0: Um, I think there was one more I had here. Yeah, I guess I see the connection of art and cults undeniable. So back to fantasy. Uh, We're living through this break of reality. um, And there are all sorts of different realities that people are living through. But do you feel like maybe there's a silent majority of people that isn't really into the whole thing, and that a lot of the, I think the reason they do it at work, my personal work is I work for a federally funded nonprofit. And I, I think that's why a lot of these people, again, a sort of like dependency. You're, you, our whole culture is dependent on this system to give it money, to give it you know resources, et cetera. Um, I'm not even sure there's a question here <laughs> but, but
1: is there a silent majority
0: yeah like do you think do you do you think this is gonna I mean they also I saw like the sort of covid Ukraine war shuffle right <laughs> um, I, I like the,
1: I like the meme like it's Ukraine season already I still have my covid decorations up I think that kind of right. sums it up
0: <laughs> right. Yes. Right. So just totally connected to the mainstream media. And um, I, I personally can't understand it. But I I mean, we have the Internet. I don't know why you would need uh, to watch CNN or well any of that stuff.
1: That's true. That's true. Um, because I think another thing that sort of sealed the deal as far as media is concerned is because of the... Uh, the Trump fake news declaration, him saying that CNN and all these networks were fake news. And of course, all the liberals thought that it's just because they were bad mouthing him. But it really was because they were fake news. But because it came out of Trump's mouth, you know, it was automatic hogwash. And they went to the opposite end of that, of what he was saying, the opposite extreme. So they just sort of solidified that and went, no, I'm gonna believe everything the media says. So I think that, I that kind of set the people stage. people that were
0: like crying when Hillary didn't yeah. get elected. The oh same silly people. <laughs> that footage I could never get over. I'm like, wow, how, uh-huh. oh, hi. Just how and why. I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Exactly. How you're like you so invested in something like that. Does
1: the person just... You just need someone with breasts in the office? Because, I mean, there's nothing else going on for her. She's just... If you want a female in office, like, let's have a oh, good one. It makes
0: one. me sad. It makes me sad, the state of women in our mainstream political apparatus or whatever yeah. you want to call it. Like, it, sure. none of them... It's it's a very strange time, and, you know, especially for women, I think. Uh, this is totally off-topic and doesn't have to make it in, but, yeah, like, the depp Heard situation, I'm just like, oh, oh no. Like, I, I don't know. It's...
1: Have you followed that? I don't know.
2: What? What is the it?
1: Johnny Depp uh, Oh,
2: God. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't. I had a feeling so, that you did, it's though. It's so classic bait and switch it's such it's it's so on brand for the lack of discernment and the immediate gratification it's it's like scraping the bottom of a lake and just getting the sludge and the shit and you know all the stuff that the catfish eats and serving that up as as though it's cuisine it's just so i mean talk about two deeply damaged narcissistic megalomaniacs and that that perfectly encapsulates what our culture is is the fact we give a fuck with what these two people are doing (laughs) in their private lives right And, and what i find so interesting is that you know In the beginning of of the Castaneda world, there was very little internet. There was very little Mm -hmm. cell phone usage. He hated the cell phone. He didn't like the internet. He was not into the virtual world. That was not his thing at all. Um, And not really into the whole hippie movement, the peace, love, and... Let's smoke a joint. That wasn't his scene at all. Um, and it seems like people who live in that reality, kind of the left woke reality, they have completely degraded any, any um, democratic I- ideology they may have had. I think that's the thing that's be, become so fascinating about all of this is that all those people we're talking about, um, women, um, Democrats, the people on the left, they have become the, the arbiters of um, being offended and the makes me feel culture. And that's become our like the, the baseline for our reality is how something makes you feel. Not what you think about it, but what you feel about it. And I think that's what's fucking us up, is that we're not really interested in facts anymore. It's all about our feelings and giving other people power and control over our feelings and over our state. And I think that's the thing that, that we keep seeing, is that it's one emotional uh manipulation after the other so the first one is covid and you're going to kill grandma then it becomes the ukraine then it becomes the trans identity movement then it becomes black lives matter so so it's you you constantly have this carrot of being offended dangling in front of you and it's for you to determine how much how offended you're gonna be and it's right, all I result- call it
0: outrage oh sorry
2: no 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 you call it outrage what
0: <laughs> outrage culture yeah
2: yeah exactly. Absolutely.
1: and all the end result of all of that is further division
2: mm-hmm. it's all ego all it's all ego none of this is coming from rational thought discernment critical thinking skills none of it so critical thinking has vanished in the political sphere in the socio-cultural sphere none of that matters what matters is what what i feel in my gut and i think that's what's fucked us up and i think that's why we have disempowered ourselves as a culture is because we're looking for the next thing and What a perfect example, the Herd Depp case. Because here you have these two multimillionaires that are fighting each other and in in a very Jerry Springer way. And we can sit back in our, you know, $20,000 a year lives and look at these wealthy people with such disgust and disdain Mm. and vitriol and hatred. As though we have some kind of moral authority. <laughs> or
0: connection to them whatsoever. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I exactly. really know what's going on. <laughs> you know? Oh I, yeah. I saw something in tweets.
1: I, I really don't know the first thing about this depth heard thing. But something in tweets like, well, this is really challenging the believe all women thing. So what's going on? Were you bringing up something having to do with that? Was something... Was she looking really bad in all of this or?
0: Um, well, I watched the first few days of the trial because I was unemployed. I was in an unemployed limbo. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I was getting all the clearances, et cetera, for, you know, what I'm doing. And, um, so I was like, I don't have a lot to do right now. I guess I'll watch this for like a little while. And so I'd be, like, cleaning the house and, like, listening to it. And, you know, I do think um, Johnny Depp is a really scary person. <laughs> I think he's kind of um, just... But he's also pathetic in a way. Where, like, a lot of this stuff, like, he basically, yeah, like, was ruining his own career through his uh, addictive behavior. Um Amber, I don't, I don't know if I trust her, but, um, it does, it does bum me out a little bit that, you know, he, uh, was victorious in this defamation, uh, lawsuit. Mm -hmm. Um, because when you look at the facts of the case, you know, she didn't even mention his name in the original, like Sun article, the Sun one, uh, over in the UK. So I really expected it to go a different way. Just, just like from a legal standpoint but it didn't Mm -hmm. um and so yeah maybe amber's a dubious witness but i think yeah i've been in relationships like that and both parties are kind of like doing this you know they're both needling each other and getting reactions and it's really hard to say at one point you know what's going on between Mm -hmm. those two people
2: especially
0: from our standpoint, we're not in that relationship. So we have no idea, like you said. Um, And why are we meant to care? Uh, But yeah, just like, I don't think it should have been televised at all. Yeah,
1: the Jelaine Maxwell (laughs) trials, they should have been.
2: It's a giant fucking distraction. And and what what I have, where I've gone into my examination, is the psychopathology of these two people, and mm-hmm. I love what the the defending uh, psychologist said about Amber Heard, that she is definitely a Cluster B borderline personality uh, narcissist, and that you know a lot of what. What, what I find so fascinating is we're talking about two sycophants. We're talking about two people who are deeply, deeply damaged, who have very twisted pathologies, first of all, and probably diver- deserve each other in many regards because they were using each other for different reasons, first and foremost. Um, But I think it's interesting that as a country and as a culture, we are so devoid of any moral fiber that we give a fuck about these two people. That's the part that fascinates me. I don't care if she shit in his bed. I don't care if she slapped herself in the face and said... He hit, he hit me. I, I don't give a fuck. I really don't. Um, you know. But I think the fact that our country does and our world does give a fuck, even if one person's watching, I find that problematic. Because it says how low we've set the bar for what's considered newsworthy and what's mm. considered televisable. Right.
0: Yeah, I yeah, do Trial she, should be
2: told. She shit. She shit in his bed.
1: Why?
0: The the UK uh, court said it was the dogs, um, but the turds <laughs> were very large, so. <laughs> Did your
1: <laughs> arms just do that? <laughs> Very large.
0: I, I just very, maybe just not on purpose even. Okay. but Yeah. Like uh, the maid. The maid said that they were very big. Yeah. Big.
2: Turds. And you always in in these circumstances one, the 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 uh, therapist who did her analysis of of herd, I always kind of lean toward what the people who work for these people say.
0: How, yeah, the assistant.
2: how, 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 how th- these people treat the people who work for them? The help. And neither one of these people is a decent, kind, no. <laughs> generous person. They're both abusers. So again, I, I look at this and I say, okay, if you, if we pull back 30,000 feet and we're kind of seeing this from above... What what part of the ant hill is this in? And it's in the distract pile. That's right. where this goes. Is well we've we've gotten everyone to this fever pitch with COVID. Now Ukraine. Now uh, monkeypox. We've we've oh, yeah, kept it. Pox. We've kept it at this this fever pitch level. Now we need to, you know, pull the release valve and give some right. entertainment for a mm-hmm. moment and distraction for a moment before we go for this next wave of trauma, basically.
0: Right, again, yes, the reality on top of, you know, the physical reality that you or I experience on a day-to-day basis um, that comes from various sources, uh, the media, the internet, etc. Um. So do you guys have any final thoughts? Or <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: not, not that are coming off. Chris has moment.
2: never pooped in our bed. I will give him that.
0: Great. I, I've never had that problem either. Um,
2: now, don't you any, feel better? Now, honestly, <laughs> don't you feel better, Natalie? Don't you feel morally superior to Amber Heard because you've never shat in someone's bed? Can't you go to bed tonight and think, you know what? I got this life. I've never shit in anybody's bed. I got, I got it going on.
0: You know, I wouldn't put it past Johnny Depp and all that Aleister Crowley poop demon stuff, but. Uh...
1: <laughs> Was he into Aleister Crowley?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm almost certain. Oh. I mean, he. I mean, the whole thing with Depp and and uh, the West Memphis Three and, and oh, getting yeah, yeah, yeah. echoes out, and they just seem like they're into some dark stuff. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. So that's where I go first is, okay. is Alistair Crowley for the dark stuff. I'm like, yeah, um, yeah, he's the king. Um, but I did the... make a joke. So, and he laughed. So. <laughs> <laughs> that was the real real goal of that.
2: Yeah, yeah. And he had, he had a very, very sketchy relationship with Hunter S. Thompson. Yes. As well, who was a known pedophile and he had his own problematic personal history So I'm not saying that Johnny Depp is without fault at all. Uh, You know, where the poop poop flies, (laughs) where it may land. I don't know if that's a saying, but if it's not, it should be.
1: I think you heard it here first.
0: We could put it on a shirt or something. Yes,
1: exactly.
2: Free Depp.
1: (laughs) Free Depp. And have like a pilot, have the poop emoji there.
0: Oh, well, this has been totally delightful. Um, Likewise. Thank you guys so much for sharing your time uh, with me today.